You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Dave Nichols, founder and CEO of Flash FOMO. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. You and I have known each other for, for a few years now, and uh, the origin story is kind of interesting. We met during your time in Singapore at Brave Bison. But before we get to that point, let's talk about how you originally found your way into media and entertainment. Yeah, sure. So it probably takes you back to about 2010. I'd finished university. It's actually a bit, bit of a longer story. Um, 2008, when the global financial crisis hit, I kind of turned around to my dad and said, you know, I've got this arts degree. What can I do with it? And he said, all right, um, probably nothing. You know, arts is, you know, for those in markets outside of Australia, it's humanities subjects. So behavioral studies, um, you know, cinema studies, all those types of things. And why did you choose to study the arts? Again, I'm not really quite sure. Like a lot of my brothers and sisters did it. I'm part of a big family and kind of just, I'm the youngest of, of eight children. So just followed suit in terms of what the other kids did. And yeah, just was something that kind of gave us, you know, more of like a well-rounded approach to, um, yeah, you know, problem solving. And um, yeah, I, just, I had to do a university degree as well. But yeah, long-winded story. Um, 2008, global financial crisis, turned around to dad and he said, in a time like this, people still transact. And the transactions taking place were real estate. Um, so people with, you know, their second, third homes selling to kind of, you know, set themselves up and uh, and avoid the avoid the GFC's, you know, full chaos. Uh, so I got into real estate. I uh, did a two-week course and three weeks later, I was working full-time you know, on a really minimal salary, I think it was like $29,000 was the base, you know, and that's criminal in 2008. Um, but in terms of like commissions, they're like insane. And so I absolutely loved it, but it was a seven days, 24 seven type role. And, you know, I did it for about 18 months and basically, you know, decided one day to, you know, I said, this is not sustainable for someone, uh, you know, in the thirties or forties, uh, you know, it's fine for me now in my early twenties, but decided to get out, um, looked at other opportunities and, you know, sales was kind of a passion. So got into, um, you know, ad sales. What about ad sales, you know, attracted you? Why, why the transition? Yeah. Well, my girlfriend at the time was on the buy side for Universal McCann and she kind of alerted me to a fact, you know, the fact that there was this company out there, um, working within, you know, digital sales and they were buying off them. And basically just, you know, a match made in heaven. I could walk into a role and start selling to a person I already knew. So after you spent your time in ad sales, you transitioned into, uh, or you moved from Australia to Singapore, right? Doing uh, some work for Big Mobile? Yeah, actually, I, I was transferred over with a business called Add to One. Mm. Um, and it was an interesting one. I think they basically went all the way down the list until they found me and found someone that wanted to move to Asia. You know, they went through all the married people, people with kids, you know, people at different life stages and just looked at this guy and thought he'll do. So it kind of just fell on my feet when I got to Singapore, literally within 24 hours, loved it, convinced, uh, you know, I was only supposed to move there for three months, ended up staying for six years, convinced my girlfriend at the time to come over with me and got her a job in media again. 
and then after a few months, I ended up getting a job at Big Mobile and helping set up their Southeast Asian operations. What was the Southeast Asian opportunity at that time? What were the markets that you were focused on? Uh, yeah, so for us, we already had operations in, in Indonesia. We had kind of like a creative slash tech team out of Indonesia. Um, so there's already a focus for Big Mobile to work within the region. Uh, what they hadn't really tapped into was, you know, ad sales and, you know, approaching the media agencies uh, Focus mainly on Southeast Asia because we're able to get, you know, a really good partnership with, I think it was at Nexus at the time, and we're able to overlay some, you know, rich HTML5 creative options um, with it. Very fortunate though, it was before Google and Facebook had really set up their operations. And so we had kind of like a, a golden patch of about 18 months before, yeah, they got everything together and, um, you know, came into the into the space how was it as uh you know someone from australia operating in these different markets with different cultural contexts what was that learning curve like it was unbelievable i think it was just more about you know my approach is always relationship building and making people feel comfortable so yeah i think i just took those kinds of traits and you know if people felt comfortable then you know i think they uh felt confidence in in purchasing whatever we're selling and you mentioned, you know, you had this golden window where uh, you were able to make a lot of money before Google and Facebook came in and, and started, you know, being very active in those markets. And I, I noticed that at that point, you kind of transitioned to a business that yeah. primarily made a lot of its revenue from Google and Facebook. And that, that was Brave Bison. Tell us a little bit more about that opportunity, that experience. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, before I joined Brave Bison, they were actually called Rightstar at the time. And I'd didn't like I was familiar with Right Star purely for the fact that they had I'm a massive sports fan, but they had the rights to the AFL outside of Australia. So I'd been, you know, jumping on to watch AFL.com for years, um, able to watch, you know, the AFL from my, you know, wherever I logged on in Indonesia or Singapore or wherever it might be. And it will always say powered by Right Star. Anyway, I was at a um, at a pub one afternoon having a couple of cordials and um, I just heard met a guy, got introduced to this person and he turned out to be the general manager, the new general manager of a company called Rightster. Um, so I kind of talked my way into letting him work for me, um, came on board as his senior director of brand solutions, and um, I guess the rest is history. Amazing. And you spent quite some time there. Uh, what was your focus as, uh, as the general manager of Brave Bison for APAC? Yeah, sure. So I transitioned into that role uh, when Richard left. So I ended up working at Brave Bison for about four years. When I first came into the business, it was trying to find, uh, we, we just acquired five businesses. Um, we're a listed company in the UK uh, and the businesses they'd acquired were all, all around social video content, essentially. The crux of the business was a multi-channel network. So we had um, you know, a lot of creators signed in both the UK and North America, but in Asia, we didn't really want to take the talent angle because it was going to be a bit too service heavy. Uh, and we didn't really have the budgets, I guess, to go out, out and hire heaps of people. So my job was trying to work out how we could commercialize other parts of our business uh, and take some models that had been kind of already working in the UK, which is more around that branded content space. So essentially more of a commercial group where you were doing influencer marketing services, branded content production, maybe paid media. That was kind of the offering, what it looked like at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, very yeah. good. And uh, in 2018, you make the move back to Melbourne and you join Web TV Asia as CEO of Australia. Yeah. So what was your original focus in helping them build that out as a new territory? Yeah, so I think my role was kind of split into two. Um, so 50% of the role was, you know, kind of helping. Um, we're in 11 markets. So we're in China, Korea, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, Taiwan, Hong Kong. I think I got them. And so part of my role was, you know, we had 300 staff and we represented 3,000 Asian social influencers hitting 20 billion minutes worth of watch time per month. 
you know, the MCN part of the business was really strong. Working into like the originals and content was a part of the focus of part of the company. Uh, and then my role was to kind of come in and help on the brand solutions team and kind of educate the local teams on what's worked in the past and then try and help them with pulling together, joining multiple markets and doing regional deals to try and get, you know, greater ad spends out of out of brands. So what does the influencer marketing model and or the MCN model look like in Southeast Asia? Because in some ways, it's uh, perhaps a bit behind what's happened in other markets like Western Europe, North America. But in other cases, you know, there are there's access to more platforms. And from a commerce standpoint, it seems like it's more advanced. So what is your, your take on what it looks like in Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think there's probably about maybe 10 to 12 key multi-channel networks or I think they're trying to shy away from the name MCN now and probably call themselves influencer networks or you know digital networks or whatever it might be trying to change the phrase but in the essence of of what we did it is still you know the multi-channel network element of it wasn't something I necessarily got too deep into in terms of like the copyright claims uh, and building out the network approach but it was still a, a good source of revenue. So it was able to, I guess, pay the bills on the other stuff that was probably bringing in high margin type deals, which is, you know, the branded sponsorship type type thing. So I think in that space, in, in Asia, it's super strong. I think the in terms of um, fan engagement is just through the roof. In some markets, you know, it's, it really is their primary form of entertainment as well, is going straight to these social platforms. So yeah, it's definitely an area of the world that we like to play in because there's so much engagement on it. In my work in the region, it struck me how unique each territory is, right? I mean, YouTube is massive in Vietnam, as it is in many other parts of Southeast Asia. But you go to a market like uh, Japan, and Twitter is you know, very strong or dominant, right? And Facebook is kind of the leading social platform in Thailand. So yeah. how do you navigate these different nuances of, of each individual market? Yeah, well, I think it comes down probably to the creator and what they're giving the audience. YouTube is like a primary platform is a good example because YouTube, you get so much two-way engagement and they really listen to their fans and then they give them back, you know, longer form content that can, you know, talk to what their fans are asking for. But then, yeah, you're right, as you get to like Japan where Twitter's so strong or, you know, other markets like Vietnam, for example, you know, Vietnam, you're probably going to see more episodic type content. You think of like the MCNs over there, Pops and, and MeTube are probably doing, you know, like original short form content with like a social first angle. Uh, and then you think of like, a market like Singapore is, you know, those influencers are kind of doing the same, you know, but playing to the nuances of each market. So in Singapore, you've got, you know, like a Wah Banana or like Jin Hao Tan, I think it is, who are doing, you know, 30 minute episodes and it's mm. it's really playing upon like Singapore life and things like that. So in short, I think it's each market is unique in terms of how they localize the content, but it's still, they're still using the same types of platforms to kind of get, get the content out there. And what about in Northern Asia, right? When you think about Taiwan, Hong Kong and mainland China? China's obviously so big. <laughs> I'm not probably probably not the first person to say that. But where it's really interesting is um, like KOLs are really KOLs. They're really key opinion leaders. And you think of, you know, a huge portion of Chinese live outside of the main cities. So they're in rural areas. So when it comes to actually like selling a product as an example, it's like the home shopping network at 2 a.m. Like you've really got to describe the type of product. You've got to describe the look and feel and, and why someone should actually have that product in their hands because these people live in the rural areas don't have the access points to come into a shopping center and touch and feel the actual product so they need to be you know told essentially so that KOLs over there are I feel like they're more like educators and more forceful in terms of how they 
talk about products and in, in that in that space and they're more like really social commerce type kols in in my opinion um, whereas you know you walk down the you know you do a, a brand campaign with an american or an australian or a, an english talent and you know let's say it's sunglasses they literally just walk down the street wearing them and, and you've got to guess that it's a branded content deal <laughs> Yeah. And is that just a cultural context piece that, you know, maybe A, there's more regulation in those markets where, you know, that you need to have disclosure and the idea is uh, there's some subliminal or subconscious influencing that's happening as a result of the product placement versus in the Southeast Asian territories, there's this kind of implicit understanding that this content is designed to drive commerce and it's a very overt endorsement of a product for their audience to better understand what their options look like. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, they. I think they just want to be told. They're probably not, uh, in my you know experience, not as exposed as much as you know American or Australian consumers. Yeah, so they need to. They almost need to be told. So speaking of commerce, you know, around this time one year ago, you launched Flash FOMO, which is an online marketplace for social influencers, specifically in Asia, to create and sell personally branded products via flash sale model. What inspired you to start the business? What was the original motivation? Yeah, so probably when I left Brave Vice, and so two years ago, almost today, I wanted to set up my own business and I had some ideas on what I wanted to do. And it was definitely in this social commerce space. You know, and the key stats that we pull out is that, you know, 70% of audiences follow advice on what to buy from their favorite YouTuber. There's 1.7 billion people in, in Asia growing at a rate of, you know, 14% year on year in terms of like social media users. Um, so obviously numbers are big. And, and obviously pointing to um, the fact that, you know, audiences listen as well. But it just kind of dawned on me, we were, you know, doing some campaigns around Singles Day almost a year and a half ago now with, um, with Web TV Asia. And, you know, brands or manufacturers that weren't necessarily, you know, your Nikes or your Adidas's were coming to us and saying, hey, you know, here's a phone cover. We'll pay you $20,000 for your influencer to promote the phone cover. I just turned around and thought, if they they must see some value in these influencers doing that, and if they're placing that value as twenty thousand dollars amongst all their other marketing techniques, then you know I saw the opportunity for us to actually just yeah start to work direct with manufacturers and start to help these influencers create a new source of revenue for themselves. Probably going back to earlier, you know that the MCN model you know might not exist in its in its current form in you know tomorrow. Like if YouTube kind of turns off you know the MCNs, and I, I think they have turned off one or two in Asia. I think, yeah, one was a bit of a victim in, in Vietnam. For for bad behavior specifically, right? With um, compliance and uh, changes in YouTube policies, there have certainly been cases where, yes, YouTube has revoked the CMS license or access to certain tools because of failure to comply. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was because of that, we had to, I, I was just wanted to think of new ways for these guys to survive, keep creating content. Um, you know, it's a big task for them if they want to go and create their own products. And so trying to make that as, as simple as possible for them. Yeah. Amazing. So I imagine given your background and existing relationships, you already had a lot of talent connections, but how did you go about sourcing manufacturing relationships? Uh, yeah, probably the more difficult part. <laughs> you know, I, I'm you know, reluctant to use the word disrupting, but essentially we are actually disrupting the manufacturing industry more than anything else. Like influencers since they've been around, have really been selling and, and endorsing products, hence the name KOL. But, you know, manufacturers aren't as used to that. So, you know, they're used to getting their regular orders from their regular, you know, large brands that place them at the same time of year. So having the conversations with them and explaining that we can hit a whole new audience, create a whole new product um, and almost take a risk with us was interesting in multiple languages. <laughs> but, you know, 
I just took the approach of going to face to face, showing them the opportunity, uh, and kind of mapping it out. Um, and we're lucky enough to partner with some really good manufacturers early on. And are you using their available capacity if they have big production runs for for traditional brands, but they have some maybe down periods, and you're able to say, hey, I want to do a more limited run. We're going to sell this in a 24 hour period, or, or whatever the case may be. You know, I assume that's also a good thing for the manufacturers. Yeah, exactly right. And so, like our model is that we create a sample of the product, we give that sample to the influencer, the influencer creates a content, drives the audience to our site, flashfromo.com, and they've got their personalized um, page within Flashfromo as well, their own sales page. They run the sale for anywhere from 24 hours to 14 days, probably wouldn't go over 14 days, but we're able to actually alert the manufacturer that our um, order will come in on the 15th day. We'll give them all the details um, in terms of you know shipping details, etc., cetera, um, and the exact amount as well. So it's amazing how this entire business model has been made possible by the internet, right? Social influencers yeah. to create and have built-in distribution for these products. Essentially, you're doing pre-sales of a product, right? And then using just-in-time manufacturing and drop shipping yeah. to handle fulfillment. It's, I mean, it's brilliant, right? And it's it's something that wouldn't have existed 10 years ago because all these different pieces needed to come together. Yeah, absolutely. And like, particularly in Asia, like we're saying, you know, fulfillment systems now are unbelievably good uh, and even like the tracking systems you know we're able to track every single product being sent out no matter which manufacturer we use or shipping company etc highlight some examples of the campaigns that you've run what does this look like in practice sure so we had um our first influencer and you know starting a new a relatively new business and a new business model that hadn't really existed you know obviously we wanted to try it on someone uh, with 10 million followers <laughs> um, as, as our test case. So yeah, we, we ended up um, talking to Be The Scar, who's one of the bigger entertainers coming out of um, out of Thailand. Um, he has 10 million followers on, on YouTube. And, you know, he's really well known for wearing these perfectly round gold sunglasses. You know, he's got a gold-plated BMW. And everything he does is gold. <laughs> everything he touches turns to gold. He's, he's awesome. So, yeah, from a personal connection, I reached out to his manager and, you know, asked him if he was interested. He said, oh, maybe. I said, I'm in Thailand tomorrow. <laughs> Basically jumped on a plane from Melbourne to Bangkok and uh, met with him. And, you know, it was a bit of a broken conversation but in, in Thai and English and drawing lots of pictures but yeah, he signed on and he's, you know, really excited to do it. So then I flew to China and met with manufacturers. We got it, the product made exactly how he wanted it. We did the model that we talked about before, creating the sample. He promoted it really well to his fans. Uh, and I guess the big, biggest success out of that is we were able to drive, I think it was something like 60,000 um, users to our site within the first hour. And that was a site that no one had heard about until Be The Scar told his fans. Um, so we kind of knew that that model would work. We could start to then iron out conversion rates. Yeah, so I think that was you know a pretty cool way to start. I wanted to create cool, sexy, and I was thinking of the case study video because I've always wor worked in sales and you need a good case study video. So I thought working with the cool entertainer out of Thailand with a cool product um, just seemed to work. And have you followed some of the similar success stories here in the US? I mean, imagine you've seen uh, like Jeffree Star and the cosmetics launch and, uh, you know, some of the things that obviously like Kylie Jenner has done with cosmetics. Yeah. That's been one category that's been particularly ripe for these influencer product collaborations. But are there, are there other categories or other types of products that you think are really attuned for this type of marketing? Yeah, so um, a good case scenario is something we did in the Philippines. Um, so the Philippines is the world's third largest polluter of oceans globally. There's four corporations that contribute to like 40 or 50% of about 45% of the um, 
the use of single-use plastic, um, the wastage of single-use plastic, uh, and the numbers are like astronomical. I think it's something like you know six million kilograms of single-use plastic is disposed every day. So we kind of use that you know primary problem in the Philippines. Um, we partnered up with some influencers that have eight million followers, and we said you know why don't we try and uh, you know solve that problem with your influence? So we created a, a reusable to-go cup that they could you know take to the Starbucks, take to McDonald's, and try and use. So I think yeah, eco-friendly products was long way of getting to that answer but eco-friendly products is something that we're focusing on even down to our packaging options we're you know choosing eco-friendly packaging options ahead of the rest where, where there's a where it's possible to do so we're starting to work more in like digital products as well so you think of you know big musicians uh want to release an album we create like an 11 level game or something like that the 11 songs that they want to release try and release that game a few days before the album launches and basically you can unlock the songs, uh, unlock a song per level. Uh, and in that you can have like in-game purchases, um, you know, you can reskin it for the particular artist as well. Yeah, so I think, I, think, I think digital products will be a real focus, even like e-learning things. We're working in Japan at the moment with, with an influencer who's, we're creating some special content with them. We're doing almost like a Kickstarter campaign to sell X amount of units before um, we go and create the e-learning as well. So we're completely de-risking the whole um, process. And I think it's been demonstrated time and again that people are willing to pay more for educational products, self-help, wellness, right? Anything that has this high return, this high intrinsic value for an individual leads to a higher purchase price. 100%. I think like the best example is Chris Hemsworth's app, Center. I think people, I haven't done it, but I know some people have, and I think it's something like $600 um to get like the full package which is like you know follow his diet you know get the right eating sleeping nutritional food plus exercise and that's you know a really strong business as well so let's talk a little bit more about your journey i'm curious if you've always considered yourself an entrepreneur or if you know just a timing and a number of factors contributed to you saying hey i've got this idea i want to i want to make a go of it yeah i think um 13 months ago, my mum had an aneurysm uh, and was, you know, in a, in a really bad way for a number of weeks. But, you know, being part of a big family, my brothers that live in the US flew over. Uh, and I probably have to credit one of my brothers, James, probably for, uh, you know, we just sit and banter over her bed. You know, she wasn't with it, but um, don't worry, she's well now. Hi, mum. <laughs> she's <hear>. great. Good. <laughs> but, you know, we just banter over her bed and say, hey, I've got this business idea. It's like, yeah, that's a billion dollar idea. And I was like telling him, like, but I've but I've got my job. Like, how do I how do I do this? He's like, nah. You need to realize you're an entrepreneur, and you need to go out and start doing it, which was good and bad because you know a year on, he didn't tell me about <laughs> how hard it can be to try and set up the business. But you know the highs are incredibly high. Is he also an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. James Very has good. his own company based out of New York called Fitzroy Health. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, check it out. Very cool. So some inspiration there and a little nudge uh, to uh, to take the leap. That's great. Yeah. What is the hardest part of being a first-time founder? I think it's di different definitions from people. So if you, for instance, we're, we're trying to raise money, always, I think it's a, a founder's constant battle, either trying to raise money or get some revenue in. So yeah, I think you know when we speak to a lot of, we've been introduced to a lot of VCs, introduced to a lot of investors, a lot of them will say they're early stage investors and you'll go through all the effort of giving them absolutely everything and then they kind of turn around and, and their excuses are it's a bit too early for us so kind of understanding the definition on what i guess an early stage investor is has probably been the most uh challenging part because I, I go into all my meetings now i kind of say we're well, early stage 
this is where we're at, this is where we're at, do you invest in these types of businesses? And generally they'll say, uh, for the right one, yes. <laughs> so um, hopefully we're the right one. So yeah, fundraising is certainly one of the big challenges. Anything operationally that you've uh, had to overcome in the first year? Not really. I think it's been, that's been pretty smooth uh, across the whole. Obviously coronavirus has probably been interesting in terms of you know manufacturers shutting down for a period of time. Uh, but it's been good because it's allowed us to actually focus on building out more scalable tech um, as well at the same time. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the digital media space, what would they be? Specific to our business? Or sure, yeah. Industry? I mean, you can talk about whatever you have greatest visibility into. So e-commerce, you know, social influencers, influencer marketing. I think it's digital products because it, it takes away, like even seeing what's happened with coronavirus, it takes away all those elements of time spent on, uh, I guess, waiting for your delivery to come. It's, all, it's instantaneous. We can upsell them within some of these digital products as well. Um, so I think that's a core focus. I think, yeah, the e-learning stuff's going to be as part of that segment as well is, is also pretty important. Uh, and seeing some massive trends, obviously, in you know eco-friendly solutions. I think there's even like a specific VC firm in Singapore that's just set up um, just investing in you know eco-friendly types of businesses as well. All big opportunities. And that's great that you're finding a way to weave those into the Flash FOMO story, right? Giving influencers options for better eco-friendly packaging, looking at e-learning models, looking at you know digital products. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what does the future hold for Flash FOMO? Uh, it's pretty exciting. We took on some investment last year from Sean O'Sullivan Ventures. A bit of background on Sean O'Sullivan. He was the guy that invented online mapping technology in like the mid-80s. Uh, in the mid-90s, I think he was credited with coining the phrase cloud computing with another guy from Compact Computing, I think. And in the 2000s, he was, I think he's on the Dragons down in the UK or Ireland. So he's, kind of, he's a bit of a, you know, a journeyman around the traps. And so we took on a bit of money as part of that. We're going to an accelerator program called China Accelerator. It was supposed to start on March the 1st in China, uh, which meant I was going to move the family over for three or four months to be part of it. But as a result of what's happening in the current climate, we're doing that all online uh, with the intention of actually trying to raise some more money um, at the demo day. And that demo day for us is, I think, June 17. So we've got, there'll be over 100 investors from China attending in person, people dial in from around the world. So that'd be pretty exciting for us, I think, in terms of where we're at. Uh, we're launching our new platform, which is a highly scalable platform for influencers to search products, design them on the platform, and go all the way through the process to either purchasing the products or, or being um, allowed onto our platform to sell. So I think that's pretty exciting. We've got some massive partnership conversations happening all around the world with really big, well-known brands. Yeah, we're, I think we're just kind of doing as much as we can and, you know, with a small team. One of the questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, you know, might be a bit different for you, but I like to ask it because I find so many entrepreneurs are listening in. And that's, you know, obviously you're, you're deep in the throes of, of building up Flash FOMO. But if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know now, what yep. would you do? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was toying around. I wanted to add a name for a business. I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, it's called Smash Content. And basically, we just wanted to create heaps of content. <laughs> I, I just got so fixated on the yeah. one idea that we're building at the moment that I haven't really um, pushed it. But yeah, it'd, be, it'd, it'd probably be down that social commerce angle of, yeah, yeah almost like uh, the home shopping network sales. Where can people find out more about you and more about Flash FOMO? We've got a few social channels. Our website is flashfomo.com. Instagram, I think it's Flash FOMO, LinkedIn. I gen generally, we post most of our updates on LinkedIn uh, in terms of you know press releases, things that are happening, uh, conferences we're attending, where we'll be, who we can meet with. And I find that the most valuable tool for us. 
obviously we're in that um, space of either trying to appeal to agencies, big brands at, at times, uh, but also um, get the word out there so we don't have to communicate it over and over and over to investors. But also, yeah, my LinkedIn, yeah, David Nichols. Terrific. So I encourage everyone out there to uh, to check out what you're up to and follow the Flash FOMO story. I remember I, was, I saw when you had left Web TV Asia and you started the business, I reached out on LinkedIn and I said, yeah. you know, congrats. It's amazing. I always love seeing someone else start their entrepreneurial journey. And I just have always been a big believer in you and been fascinated by the concept. So it's really cool to get a deeper look behind the story and in, into the journey and yeah, continue to wish you the best of luck. Thanks, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.